Good morning. It's good to see you. Those of you here in person, if you're with us online, we're glad you're here too. If you've got a Bible, go with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. That is what we are studying today, and I did not have this in my notes, but I want to do a little teaching moment about something we just sang because it's important to me to understand we're singing some deep truths uh, as we're declaring that second song, we sang Alleluia to the Son of Suffering. I want to make sure you don't miss something there because it's deeply important for your life, like this week, right, and in this last season. When you sing Alleluia, you know that phrase, it's a Hebrew word, it just means praise God. That's what you're declaring, praise God. But when you match that with the Son of Suffering, what you're declaring is an image from Isaiah chapter 53 that Jesus, the Messiah, is the Son of Suffering. And when you say praise God to the Son of Suffering, you're declaring that Jesus is God and that we identify him as God, not just because of his power, but through his suffering. It's his sufferings that caused us to see one this glorious and this beautiful was revealed as the Son of God through his suffering and then on the back side of that suffering through his resurrection. And do you know what that means? You will be identified as a child of God through humility and lowliness. That's the implication for your life and mine. When we sing hallelujah, hallelujah, praise God, we're saying praise God because we see you through suffering. And when you declare that, what you're also declaring is that you will be seen as a follower of God when you walk in lowliness and humility. Does that make sense? So we say, I just want to unpack that for a second because we're saying that, and sometimes I worry that we sing stuff and we go, yes, and then we don't actually know what we said, you know, what we sung. And I'm guilty of that sometimes. I sing it and I go, oh, it was awesome. It was beautiful and I love the melody. But man, you got to capture some of these things as we're singing them because it's rich and it's deep. So we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I got my Foodless Feast shirt on today. I have to say, our students participated in Foodless Feast this weekend. If you know one of them uh, who was part of it, just encourage them. I love that our students continue to lead the way in so many things, one of them being helping us remember to care for the poor, to care for the hungry, to care for those in need, and that's what Foodless Feast aims at. I did not earn this shirt by fasting along with them this weekend. Had a kid's birthday party. There was cake to be had, so... My fast will have to be at another point, but um, they let me graciously have the t-shirt to remind us all about this. And so anyway, encourage that that happened this year as it does every year. And so love that our students are engaging in that way. Now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 is what we're going to look at. And we're kind of coming to the end of our study of this book, and we've been focusing on the return of Christ and what Paul has to teach us about it and how we are prepared for that. And I hope it's encouraged you. Hope it's been one of those series where as we go through the book, you're looking through a fresh lens or maybe just a renewed lens at the return of Jesus and how it impacts our life in a day-to-day fashion. That's been my hope and prayer throughout this. And so we've just got a couple more weeks as we study this, and then we'll be in Advent together. We'll be thinking about the incarnation, uh, and we'll do that throughout the month of December together and excited about that to just contemplate. We're going to contemplate the names of Jesus throughout Isaiah 9, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. So we're going to spend some time just contemplating who God declared Jesus would be in his incarnation when he came to us. So I have a question for you. Do any of you have the dream? Because my wife, I surveyed my, it was a survey of two, my wife and I, we both answered yes to this. Uh, Do any of you have the dream where you are showing up for a test at school and you have not studied and didn't know it was going to happen, and now you're in their exam room and you're panicked. Does anybody have that dream? Okay, good. And a lot of you who raised your hand are like me. I haven't been in school for 20 plus years, and I still have that dream. So school did a number on me, maybe, 
Maybe it did a number on you. And isn't it the worst feeling to be unprepared for that? Like when you wake up from the dream, it's like a cold sweat, isn't it? Oh, it's just the worst, right? I actually have a friend, my best friend in college, Ryan Johnson, who uh, showed up for an engineering final. He was an industrial engineer. I don't remember which final it was. He showed up for a final, and he and I had made plans to meet for lunch after the final, and afterwards met him at lunch, said, how was the final? He said, it was Wednesday. He said, I found out when I got there on Wednesday that the final was on Tuesday. He had missed the final by an entire day. He had to beg for grace to see if he could still take the final, and I, I think the professor let him take the final. But I just remember sitting with him over lunch just being like, isn't that, see, you all just went, oh, because you know that feeling. It's the worst thing in the world. It just feels awful to be unprepared for an exam, for a test, for something that you're like, I, I, I need to be ready for this when you're not, right, or when you show up on the wrong day, Right? As we turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that's exactly the question the Thessalonian church is asking Paul, and he's wanting to answer for them. They're asking, how do we know we're going to be ready for Jesus to return? How do we know we're going to be ready to stand before him when he returns? And Paul wants to answer that question for them. Now, let me just kind of remind you, and maybe you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, and if so, I'll catch you up. But if you were here, then I'll remind you. You remember the last week what we saw was that Paul was answering a question for this church. Now, this is a church that is, Paul's deeply encouraged by. Uh, he loves the report he's gotten from Timothy. He's writing from Corinth and sent Timothy to check in on them because he was deeply concerned about where they might be, and they were enduring a lot of persecution and suffering. It was a difficult thing they were having to walk through. So Paul's worried, and he sends Timothy, and the report he gets back is glowing, I mean, it's, it's so positive. And so this letter that we're reading and studying is really this gushing letter of love and affection saying, well done. But he's also answering some questions for them. And one of their questions last week we saw was, hey, some people we really love have died, some, parts, some members of our church. And we're really worried that when Jesus comes back, that somehow they're gonna miss out on that, that, that they're gonna have a lesser experience of that. There's some confusion in them. And if you were with us last week, we tried to answer that question by highlighting this reality that what Paul says to them is, oh no, not only are they not going to miss out on the return of Jesus, they're going to be in a place of honor when Jesus returns, that he's going to raise their bodies from the grave. They're with him now in soul and spirit, and they're going to return with him, and then we're going to be caught up in the air with them to meet him and them in the air, and then return to establish the reign of Christ on the earth. And not only are they not going to miss out on that, they're going to have a glorious experience of being the ones that go first to welcome the Lord and receive their resurrection bodies. And only then those who are alive will come after them. That was, I hope, deeply comforting and encouraging to us. Do you remember us answering that question? Yeah? So he's answering a different question this week. And that question is that they're, uh, they're really asking a subset of, that, of a bigger question. First, they're asking, when is Jesus going to come back because we want to be ready, right? Kind of like my friend Ryan, we don't want to show up for the exam on the wrong day, right? We want to be ready for the exam when the exam comes, when the test comes. And so they're asking, when is he going to come? And what we're going to find is that Paul, just like he's done throughout, is going to say, you don't need to worry about the exact time of when he's going to come. What you need to worry about is being ready for whenever he comes, you need to stay awake and stay alert and keep awake at all times so that when he comes, you're prepared. That's how you're ready for the return of Jesus, not by knowing the date or the time or by knowing some of these other things that he actually shares with them in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 
And Jesus shares with us in Matthew chapter 24 some things about timeline and some uh, events that will occur at the end of time that are indicators and signals that the return of Jesus is close, things like the appearance of the Antichrist, things like uh, signs in the heavens with the sun being darkened, and these different indicators that we're told in Scripture are not unimportant, but Paul doesn't press into any of those. And by the way, every generation of Christians has thought that they observed those signs at some point and that it was coming. And so far, they've all been wrong. (laughs) You know, and one day, somebody's going to be right, but we don't know exactly when. And so what Paul is going to say to them is, what I want you to do, Thessalonian church, is if you're going to stand before the Lord Jesus and be ready to stand before him, we need to talk about what it means to keep awake. We need to learn what it means to every day be ready and prepared to be in the presence of the Lord. Fair enough, yeah? And so, in order to, I promise, I'm not just going to pile questions upon questions, but the way he essentially answers that question of how do I know that I'm ready to stand before Jesus is by inviting them to examine themselves by asking themselves three questions. And those three questions are, number one, who am I? Number two, what's the evidence of that? And number three, who's helping me? Right? Who am I? What's the evidence of that? And who's helping me are the three things that we're going to see Paul's going to highlight in our passage together today. So let's look and let's read verses 1 through 11 in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And let's see those three questions which I find here. All right. Now, he says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Okay, pause right there, just a little interjection. So you see that what I was saying to you is true here. He's saying to them, I've talked to you about the times and the seasons, but you don't need me to revisit those things. That's what he's saying. He's not saying you don't know anything about them. He's saying you don't need me to revisit those things with you. Here's what you know. You know when the Lord comes, he will come like a thief in the night. In other words, it will be sudden. And let's find out then where he goes from there, because then it would be important to go, okay, if he wants to unpack timelines and uh, facts and events, and then that's how we be prepared. But that's not what he does. Look what he does next. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And I need to make another interjection here. He's been using darkness and light and talking about those who are asleep, don't be asleep, keep awake. He changes the way he uses that here and he's talking about whether you're awake or asleep in the same way he talked about in chapter four. In other words, whether you're dead or alive. Those who are dead will be with the Lord when he comes back. Those who are alive will be with the Lord when he comes back. So it's a change of his use of that metaphor. I just want to make sure you follow that, all right? So that's what he says there. 
who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. That's our text for today. Now, can I remind you there that last thing we read, we read the same exact thing at the end of chapter four when he said to encourage one another. Do we remember that? We've been reading every week as our benediction at the end of chapter four when he says, hey, the Lord's coming back. I want you to encourage one another with the fact that you will always be with him when he comes back again. And he returns that idea again here. At the end of our time together, I'm just gonna give you a little glimpse at the end of the sermon here today. We're gonna talk about encouraging one another and what that means and why it's so important for building one another up and being prepared to stand before the Lord Jesus. I want you to picture in your mind with me for a moment that the Lord Jesus is going to come and you are going to stand before him. And I want you to ask yourself the question today, am I prepared for that? Am I ready for that? And let's examine ourselves with these three questions that Paul invites us to ask in this text. Here's the first one, who am I? Who am I? Now when I ask that, that's a question of identity. It's a question of identity and what I mean by that is When you ask, who am I, you're asking, what defines me, right? What gives me value? What is my identity? Now, I want to unpack that idea of identity here in just a moment, but why does Paul start there? Let's ask that question first. And there's two reasons why Paul, before ever getting to sort of things you should be doing to be ready to stand before Jesus, there's a reason he starts with an identity question and and talking about identity. And the, the answer to that is this. There's two reasons. Number one is because all the good work in the world cannot prepare you to stand before a holy God. There has to be something changed in your inner person, and it can't be touched by your works. The thing that needs to change is bigger than can be changed by doing as many works as you can do. Does that make sense? That's the first thing. There's something broken inside of you and I from birth that has to be changed. And Paul talks about it by using this metaphor, children of light versus children of darkness. Now the second reason Paul starts with identity first is because the work that we do need to do, the work that we should do, can't be done until that change inside has happened, until an internal change has happened. This is the basic premise of the Christian worldview, right? is that the way we are changed and transformed is through belief and faith that transforms us inside, and then what happens on the inside makes its way out into our actions. Not, we must do things from the outside to create a change that that drives in from the outside. We believe change can only happen from the inside through a mediator who does it for us and then presses it out into our lives, not outside, in. Does that make sense, everybody? Okay, so here's what Paul has done in the first half of these verses, one through five, and then he kind of sandwiches it with verse nine, but one through five and then verse nine really are all about identity, and then it's verses six, seven, and eight that are about, well, in light of that identity, what should you do, how should you live, how should you behave to be ready for the return of Jesus, and then at the end, verse 11, he's going to talk to us about who are you looking to for help to do this. Right, so let's, again, we're answering that identity question. So what Paul essentially does is he divides the entire world into, into two categories. Every person who's ever lived, one, children of light, two, children of darkness. And he describes not just the inner reality of those two groups of people, but the destiny of those two people. And it's a sobering thing, but we need to see it and face it. And let me say to you, friends, who are 
with us, and, and you're here every week, and we know, and we're so glad that you're here. Uh, those of you who do not believe, you're either examining faith in Jesus, or you've come, uh, you know, dutifully as a good friend to somebody, or maybe you just found yourself here for reasons you can't quite identify today. We're going to share something really hard with you, but I want you to hear it, and I want you to hear it because now can be the day of mercy. But listen to what he says. Again, we read it already, but let's go back to it. Verse 3. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Let me just tell you what we just heard in verses 3 and 4. He's saying that those who are still in their inner person, their identity is in this category, a child of darkness, which is all of us before God came through Jesus and did a work in us, yes? That category, for them, the return of Christ will be two things. It will be sudden for everybody. It will be sudden for believers, and it will be sudden for those who don't believe. It will be sudden for children of light, and it will be sudden for children of darkness, but it will be a surprise children of darkness. It will not be a surprise to children of light. Why? Because the children of light are looking for it. Don't know the time or the hour or the date, but are waiting with eager expectation. And while we will not know the timing of it, we will not be surprised by it in the sense of being caught off guard. But you see here that what he's saying is those who are not in that category, children of light, will be saying to themselves, this is a time of peace. This is a time to relax. This is a time of ease, and in that moment, the return of Jesus will bring sudden destruction. Now, here's why that's important, because when Jesus came and lived in the world, he came and declared mercy and grace and sought out sinners and died on a cross to redeem and reconcile. But when he comes again, he will not come according to the same, in, in the same way. He will come and bring judgment upon sin in finality. That's why the scriptures here say it will mean destruction. And the second category of the way this return approaches a child of darkness is not just that it will be a surprise, but it will be unavoidable is the other thing. He uses the metaphor of a woman in labor pains, right? And, you know, I... The, the image that he's creating there is once labor begins, there's no way to go around it. You have to go through it, right? His point is that the, the pain of labor is unavoidable as it's begun. It cannot be escaped. And that's the message that he is giving here. He's using that metaphor to show the reality of it. But friends, here's what we would say to you. We declare this to you now so that you would see that today is the day of mercy, Today can be the day of salvation. Right now is the opportunity to receive the extended offer of mercy from Christ. And he will welcome you so that that day would not surprise you. Then he goes on to describe the destiny of the children of light. And what he's wanting to do, church, again here, I want you to see this. He's trying to paint a picture that the difference between you, the follower of Christ, and those who have not believed in him is so fundamental and so uh, 
so integral that it's essentially like living in two different internal worlds. You no longer inhabit the same internal world as someone who does not believe. There is something radically transformative and different about you, and it's only when you get that that you can begin to live according to the manner that God has invited you to live. It always begins with identity first. It always begins by understanding the radical transformation that has taken place. And so he says here, in verse five, he says, well, verse four, he says, you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. And then in verse six, he's gonna begin to say, so, so what? So then what do you do with that? But here's what I want you to see. He's describing the difference. If you're a follower of Jesus, he's saying it's the difference between darkness and light, the difference between death and life. It is fundamentally two things that are that do not combine or go together and you are no longer this you are now this this is meant to be a tremendous encouragement so when you hear follow of Jesus are you ready to stand before Jesus he doesn't intend that question to cause you fear or intimidation he wants that question to create excitement in you because you understand that fundamentally you have been transformed from someone walking in darkness to now a child of light that that is your identity that is who you are, that transformation has taken place. Now let me do something just briefly before we go to question number two and question number three. Because here's what I find. When we talk about identity, we, either, we make one of two mistakes often in the church. We either talk about it in such nebulous ways that no one really knows what we're talking about. We're like, oh, identity, sure, yeah, I got it. I've got a new identity, a new identity. And you're like, I don't, thanks a lot. That didn't do anything for me, right? Or we make it so complex in our, tri- in our attempts to explain it that essentially it just becomes babble. It just becomes sort of jargon where we're just like, what, what are you talking about? Does that make sense? So can I try to help us avoid that error and just unpack for you just for a few moments what the scriptures mean when they talk about receiving a new identity? Can, I, can we do that for just a moment, okay? Practically, when we talk about identity in the scriptures, here's what we mean, right? It's a good scriptural concept. And the idea is that when you talk about identity, all you're really talking about is where do, where do you get your sense of value from? That's what identity is. It's wherever, whatever you think gives you value. So think about that for a moment. Think about where you, where you tend to draw your value from. I would argue that there's, there's many options there, but for most people, we derive a sense of identity from three places, and I'm gonna give you it in three Ps, so hopefully it's memorable, right? From purpose, from people, and from power. Purpose, people, power. Just say that five times fast, right? Purpose, people, power. And here's the deal, okay? When we talk about purpose, people, we we tend to look for a a sense of my value from having a purpose in life. What is it? What am I made to do? What do I exist to accomplish? And if I'm able to accomplish it, then I have value. And if I'm not able to accomplish it, then I don't have value or I have less value. That's one place we often look for identity. Another place we often look for identity, and these are not mutually exclusive, by the way, usually it's a combination of these, is our people. Who do I belong to? Who accepts me? Who takes me in? And what are the rules for that group of people upon which or by which I'm accepted? How do I get in? How do I not get pushed out? I belong to this, is it because, is it, is it I belong to a group of people based on my gender, based on my sexuality, based upon my skin color, based upon what? Like what causes me to belong because of my last name, because of blood, family, origin? Who are my people? That's another place where we tend to try to seek a sense of value. I'm valuable because I belong to this group, right? This group of people. 
The third place we often look for a sense of identity is in our power. And all I mean by power is our skills and abilities. Our skills and abilities, our gifts, the things that we're good at. And so we tend to trumpet the things that we're good at. Like if I'm athletic, I think that gives me value. If I'm intelligent, I think that gives me value. If I'm whatever, whatever. Usually the one you like the best is the one you're the best at, right? And so those three places we often look for value. Now here's, the di- here's what the gospel does. Here's what I want to make really simple for you. Here's how the gospel speaks to our identity, this transformation that takes place inside. All three of those places where we're prone to look for, like, this is where my identity comes from. This is what gives me value. The way we approached that before we knew Jesus was that we thought our identity had to be achieved, not received. And what the gospel does is it makes our identity received and not achieved. And it makes all the difference in the world. Because when our identity is achieved, here's what we do. We go, my purpose, I've got to accomplish something in the world. I've got to make something of myself. My skills and abilities, my power, right? We go, hey, the better I am at this, the better, you know, and so here's what happens. The better I am at this, the more value I have. And so what do we do? We degrade others to make them lesser than us so that our power and our abilities and skills seems more. And it becomes a competitive existence. Can I just tell you, I've walked that road. It ain't fun, right? When we talk about our people, We spend our time trying to make sure whatever group of people I think I need to belong to to get my value from, I have to achieve something in order to stay in that group. But here's what the gospel does. Comes in and it says you have a purpose and it's established for you. It's received, not achieved. Your purpose, I love the way Westminster Confession says this, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In other words, your purpose is to be in relationship with God. That's what glorifies him, that you love him first and most. And then to glorify him through, yeah, your actions, through what you do. But do you see that what that is, it's a purpose that can't be taken from you, and it will never change. It will never change. That is your purpose for always and forever, and it's received, is given to you, imparted to you. Your people, when you come to believe in Jesus, you get a family, you get a family of faith. And here's the beauty. Even when you're off the rails and have to be disciplined by that family, you're still part of the family. You're in that family because you were made a part of that family as a child of God. You have a received people to belong to, not one that you earned the right to belong to. So you don't have to achieve stuff to keep being part of the family of faith. The third thing the gospel does is it takes our... Uh, our powers, and what it does is this. It goes, yeah, you have skills and abilities, but one of the things that the gospel does, it goes, remember that every one of them was given to you by God. And then when you get the Holy Spirit, because you've trusted in Christ, you get spiritual gifts, gifts of leadership or teaching or mercy or, you know, you, the list goes on, right? You get those, and they were, were they achieved or they, were they received, church? They were received. And as a result, they're stable. Now, here's my whole point in telling you all that. When you think about identity and where you get your value from, those three Ps, maybe they're helpful categories for you, but understand what the gospel has done is it's come into every one of those categories and it is said now, you have an identity that is stable. You have an internal person that's been changed and transformed and is now a base from which you can operate and do what it is God calls you to do, but you can't do that as long as you believe you're doing those things to achieve an identity. You can only do them when you believe you've received the identity already and now you can live that out from that, 
stable foundation. Everybody with me so far? All right, awesome. Hopefully that's enough, not too much, not jargon, getting into it a little bit. All right, so let's go to our second question then, which is, what is the evidence of that new identity? So the first thing that we have to know to be ready to stand before Jesus when he returns is the answer to that question, who am I? Am I, is my identity a child of light or is it a child of darkness? The children of light are ready to stand before the Lord because of that new identity. Now, here's the thing, and I, sorry, I should have said this before moving to the second question. Verse nine tells us how we receive that new identity when it says that Jesus died for us. And I don't wanna move past that. That's why your identity can be received, not achieved. Because he came in and you were enslaved in darkness and the penalty of that was on you and there was no way out of that. That was not a prison cell you could figure out an escape from. And so what Paul emphasizes is children of light are children of light because Jesus died. And he doesn't emphasize the resurrection there. He emphasizes what? His death. Because his death pays the penalty to free you from that identity of darkness and to usher you into an identity of light. That's why we say it's received and not achieved. Now, the second question is, what's the evidence of that new identity? And the answer to that question is the things that we do. The things that we do are the evidence of the new person that has taken place in us, the transformation that has come. And he's gonna emphasize four specific things. I'm just almost gonna do a little more than list them for you, but I'm, I'm not gonna expound deeply on any one of these, but here's what you need to see in the scriptures. Beginning in verse six, and then in seven and eight, what he says is that, that being a child of light it's gonna produce these activities in you, these character traits and actions. Sobriety, he's gonna be sober, and that's another, another way to translate that word is moral self-control. That you demonstrate moral self-control. And then he's gonna give us the big three. He's gonna go back again. If you remember when we looked in chapter one, he talked about the big three character traits and actions, and they were, if you remember, faith and hope. And I bet you can guess the last one and love, faith and hope and love. For Paul, those three come up again and again and again. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 when he's talking about when Christ returns and now we see dimly as in a mirror but then we'll see face to face and we'll know fully even as we are fully known now by him. We'll see him fully and know him fully and at the end of that, all that discussion about love, he says now these three remain, faith, hope, and love but the greatest of these is love. You might be familiar with that. And so these three things Paul revisits again and again. So let's ask ourselves the question, am I ready for Jesus to return? Well, I need to ask, do I demonstrate moral self-control, faith, hope, and love? Look at verse four and five. Oh, sorry, six, seven, and eight. In verse six, he says, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Now, he's not talking about, just not, about not just drinking too much alcohol. He's literally talking about be a person who shows self-control in all your activities. And then he says, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So just quickly, when we think about showing moral self-control, we can think of it as not being intoxicated by the things of the world. In other words, what he's saying is don't, when he's talking about don't get drunk, he's saying don't be intoxicated with desire for the things of the world. Exercise self-control. There are many good things 
But those good things taken part of too much can ultimately intoxicate us with worldly values and a desire for the things of the world and lose our intentionality about living out our identity with an eye towards heaven, right? So yesterday, I watched some college football. That's a great gift, that's wonderful. Maybe you did too, but we can do too much of that, yes? We can spend too much time, energy, attention on these good things. And he's saying, don't be intoxicated, not just by entertainments, but also by money, you know, by physical desires. He's saying, be sober, be self-controlled. Here's why he has to say that, because even though we've received a new identity and something in us is now fundamentally right that used to be fundamentally wrong, the flesh still remains. And as long as the flesh still remains, certain desires, it's not as if we came to Jesus and all of a sudden, when that happened, we were no longer tempted by things that we used to desire and we just don't have any desire for them anymore. Often, those desires linger. And because they do, self-control will always be a fruit of the spirit that a believer needs to demonstrate. You will always have to say no to things that are not good or that you can't indulge too much of because they'll put you off track. Self-control must always be a part of the life of a believer. That's why Paul emphasizes that here when he says, be sober. He says it twice, actually, in this passage. So let's ask a question. Is my life marked by self-control and discipline, or is it marked by impulsiveness? Being self-controlled is how we are ready to stand before Jesus. Then he goes into the big three, faith and love and hope. Now, faith, I think a helpful definition John Piper offered years ago, and I've always liked it, so I've I've stuck with it, because I think it's a good description of how the scriptures talk about this word faith, that faith is being satisfied with all that God is for us in Christ Jesus. That's what faith truly is. It's, It's more about what we find our satisfaction in than it is just about a mental assent to some set of facts. And so faith is being satisfied with all that God is for us in Christ Jesus, and if that's true, then what that does is it also produces a trust in us and a willingness to go wherever he sends us. We have on our, one of our walls in our house a quote from Jill Briscoe that I've, I've really liked. I think I've shared it with you before, and I had to double-check it with Amanda to make sure I got it right today. But she, she says this in terms of trusting the Lord. She says, follower of Jesus, and this, this three-part phrase is on our wall. It says, you go where you're sent, you stay where you're put, and you give what you got. You go where you're sent, you stay where you're put. The reason I like that is that middle one because sometimes we think about, well, I trust the Lord enough to go somewhere, but do you trust him enough to stay somewhere sometimes? To stay put and to be diligent and rooted in that place. And then just give what you've got. I love that, I see that all the time. It's a good little reminder for me. Maybe it'll be a good reminder for you. But here's what Paul is saying is if we're gonna be ready for the return of Jesus, then we're gonna have to display faith and that faith is displayed as trust. So the question that comes to us, is there anything in my life that I need in order to be satisfied other than what God has done for me in Jesus? I'm not talking about receiving a good gift. I'm talking about do you need it in order to be okay? Is there anything in your life that you need in order to be okay? If the answer to that is yes, then that's contrary to operating by faith in that new identity as a child of light. If I lost everything else but still had my relationship with him, would that be enough for me? And is my life marked by a willingness to go wherever he wants me to go, to stay wherever he puts me, and to give whatever I have to give, day by day by day? 
And then the next thing he talks about is love. And I don't need to belabor what love is, right? I mean, love is, an, is, is uh, I think we can really speak to it as an, as an emotional warmth and a commitment displayed in sacrifice. That's, that's how I might talk about love, right? It's, it's, there's an emotional warmth. It's not just commitment displayed in sacrifice, but it's a commitment displayed in sacrifice for another with emotional warmth with it. The scriptures definitely talk about love as something that affects our emotions. It is not just, well, I love you because I, I sort of dryly do my duty towards you. But there is deep emotional warmth in love as well. So let's ask ourselves the question, is my life truly marked by love of neighbor? In my neighborhood, in my workplace, am I known as a person of love? If I, if I could go tomorrow to your workplace or to your neighborhood and ask your coworkers, how would you, how would you talk about this person? Would you say that they're known for being full of love? How do you think they'd answer that question? Everybody got real quiet. <laughs> it's a good question to ask us because we're not ready for the return of Jesus until we are marked by love because that's part of being a child of light, being marked by love. Then, the last category is hope. And hope is the joyful and confident expectation that God will keep all his promises, particularly the promise to save us when he comes back, that he's not gonna flip that around and condemn us, but that he will keep his promise to save us. And hope is the confident expectation and the joyful expectation that all of his promises will be fulfilled, will be kept. And if that's the case then, here's what I would say is we need to ask ourselves the question, Am I having my decisions dictated more by hope or more by desperation? Are the choices that I'm making, like if you went back and made a log of all your decisions in the last month, how would hope have informed those decisions? Did it, was it the guiding and dictating force in those decisions or was there a desperation and a sort of a sense of I don't know that I'm gonna be okay or that God is gonna keep his promises? Were those dictating those decisions about the words that you spoke and about the way you navigated relationships and about the things that you purchased and about the things that you spent your time and energy on? All those questions that we answer day by day by day. Now, last observation about all of these. Moral self-control, faith, love, and hope. Paul identifies here as the markers of children of light who are ready to stand before Jesus at his return. But the last thing I want you to notice, he talks about them as armor, which means they are something to put on. It means making an intentional choice every day to say, I will put on faith. I will put on love. I will put on hope. We don't just expect it to ooze out of us it's like it's given to us, it's in the closet, it's hanging up. The question is, will I go take it off the hanger and put it on my body? Will I choose today to put on the armor that he's provided? Now, don't get caught up. Ephesians 6 has a whole description of the armor of God, and many of these things are mentioned there. But the pieces of armor are not the same as the pieces of armor mentioned there. Like, don't get caught up on that. The point is not, well, this is the breastplate, and this is the helmet, and this is... The point is, they're armor, all right? So think of them as something that must be put on and that can protect you, okay, y'all? So my southern comes out when I start talking about warfare, all right? <laughs> Battle. The point is, put them on. 
Put them on. When you go into your closet or your drawer tomorrow morning and you put on whatever it is you're going to choose to wear for the day, you should just in the same way think to myself, you know what's sitting right there next to this shirt is faith. Am I going to put that on? And you know what's hanging up in the closet next to that pair of pants that I'm going to throw on? It's love. Am I going to take that off the hanger? Am I going to put that on today? What Paul is saying is the children of light show the evidence of their identity by putting on faith, hope, love, and moral self-control. And so we must show the evidence of our identity by putting them on like the armor that they are. And by the way, if they're armor, they will protect you. They will help you. It's not a chore to put them on. This is not a fashion faux pas, all right? To pull these things out of the closet and go, whoa, these look so out of style. I can't believe I gotta wear these today. He's saying no. I'm stretching the metaphor a little bit. Sorry, forgive me. Now, last thing, last question he wants us to answer is who's helping me? Look at verse 11. After saying, it's in verse nine and 10, it's Jesus who died in order to give you this new identity. So live with moral self-control and faith and hope and love. And then he goes in verse 11, and very simply, he just says this. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. In other words, in light of the command to put on all these pieces of armor, to do, live all these actions, you're gonna need other people to do that. There's no one in here that's able to do these things by themselves. It is hard to match identity with activity. It is not easy to always go, this is who I am, therefore this is how I will live. And if you have tried it at all, you know that's true. You know that there are times where you are doing the things that deep down you know you don't want to do, and you know it's not who I am, but you seem drawn to it, and you do it anyway. You say that word of gossip. You yell in anger over that thing. You look at that thing you shouldn't look at, and you're like, why am I doing this? And it tears you up inside, and you're brokenhearted about it, and you wish you hadn't said that thing or done that thing, and it just kills you. It is hard to match identity and activity. We're gonna spend our whole lives doing it so that we're more and more ready for the return of Jesus should he come while we're still alive. Oh, let it be. But... You need other people to help you do it. That's the point here. And did you notice, he doesn't just say encourage one another. He says encourage one another and build one another up. Now, I presume that what that means is these relationships have to be longstanding and deep. You don't build a house in one day, at least not one worth living in. If we're going to build one another up, that infers a long-term relationship with each other. It infers an investment in one another that takes place over a long period of time. You need other people. You cannot do what you must do by yourself. You need people to encourage you, to help you, and to build you up, and they need you to do the same for them. It's just a reality that Paul is pointing us to that he wants us to live out. Now listen, friends, I know, I understand that this has been, what he's saying here is, you need to understand that the difficulty of the relationships in the body of Christ sometimes is the very point. It's what changes you when you have to bear with someone that's frustrating you. When you bear the burden of someone that's inconvenient to bear because it's hard to do it and you'd rather sit on your couch but you need to get up and go and serve them and, and bear their burden with them and to do that is hard and sacrificial and that's what changes you. 
That's what builds up faith. That's what imparts love. That's what gives you hope, is when you do the difficulty of the encouraging one another and the building one another up. And as they do it for you, it does that in your own heart and in your own life. Would you agree with that? That's the point. That's why the relationships have to last, even when they're hard. Look, here's, here's the reality of the last probably two years. I don't know that the church at large in America has done a great job of displaying this, that we are to encourage one another and build one another up. I mean, my school administrators out there and my teachers, I see you. You're getting beat up, sometimes by other brothers and sisters in the Lord, and I'm so sorry. I'm really sorry. It stinks. But don't give up. The church, church friends, I, Look, however hard life in the church may, maybe has been for you and, and if there's been hard relationships and brokenness with other believers, can I just assure you, it's been just as hard here. We have not lived this out we could have. There have been people who have left our church and we love them. Do you hear me say that? We love them. It hurts that they left. It hurts a lot. It stinks. We don't like it we love them and do you know what I know I'm not giving up on the body of Christ I'm not giving up don't give up don't give up investing in deep relationships don't give up making yourself vulnerable don't give up because Christ will purify his bride and she will not be defeated it is his purpose for the world that he would establish a church of people of love, and even when we get it wrong, if we get it wrong for long seasons and we're just not as gracious and kind with one another as we need to be, if we disagree about things or disagree about what's worth disagreeing about, if we do all of that for a while, we are going to make it through. I don't mean West Shore, I mean the people of God. We're going to make it through because Christ has promised he will build his church and no one will stop him. And I got a pretty clear picture in Revelation 19 of Christ coming for his bride and establishing the marriage supper of the Lamb and having purified her and clothed her in white so that she might meet him and say, our wedding day has come. And that's the picture of the bride. And that's where we're headed. And it will not be thwarted. It will not be undone by any dumb COVID disease or arguments about masks or disagreements about political engagement or racial issues. None of it will stop Christ from working through his bride. So don't give up. Don't give up on the church. Don't give up on the bride of Christ. Keep pressing in. I'm sorry if this has been a season where there's been some injury and some hurt. I'm sorry. I know that is hard and it stinks. And I'm not just sort of like, hey, just have hope. Don't even worry about it. I don't mean that. I just so don't want you to give up. I see people walking away from the church in these days because they watch us fight with each other and say, it doesn't look like what I was told this was supposed to look like. It kills me, man, it kills me. But we will make it through. I know it for a fact, because God never, ever goes back on a promise. And I believe. Stay in it. Keep engaging.
Bear one another's burdens. Build each other up. Encourage one another. Church family, how do we know we're ready for the return of Jesus, right? How do we know we're not like my friend and showing up on the wrong date for the test and not ready? How do we know? We know because he's given us a new identity. We are children of light. We know because we continue to walk in the evidence of that in faith, hope, love, and moral self-control. And because we commit ourselves to walk alongside other believers and to help each other be ready. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your word. We pray that it would bear fruit in us. We don't want to just be hearers of it now. We've heard it. Help us to respond rightly to it. Our first response, Lord Jesus, before we even walk out the door here today is to sing praises to you one more time. Just to declare your worth and your goodness. And so we pray that you receive them from us. And let our hearts be lifted up before you that they might, you might do the, the healing and restoring and challenging and convicting work that it pleases you to do in us. We want nothing more as individuals and as a church family. We want nothing more than to be who you want us to be and to do what you want us to do. We want to walk step by step by step with you. We don't want to miss a moment of being right at your side and right where you tell us to go. That from you, a gentle nudge in a direction would always be enough. We never need a heavy hand to get us going where we need to go. We want to be so attentive to you that just a, a whisper and a nudge is all that's needed. But help us. We are weak. Help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.